Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I'm your host, John Skinner, and here's your other host, Connor Reed. Mm-hmm. We are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. So we are nearing the end of our Limitations Breed Creativity series, and Terrence Malick is an interesting look into limitations because he just so much goes against the flow of Hollywood, against traditional filmmaking, against all that sort of stuff. And so we just thought it would be it would be fun to kind of throw in one of his films. And again, with Terry Gilliam and most of the other filmmakers on this list, you could kind of include just about every single one of their films in there and do a different episode that all pertains to the same theme. Uh, but we really wanted to zone in on his kind of like trilogy of films, like unofficial trilogy, really, of To the Wonder, Night of Cups, and Song to Song, because it kind of even further breaks away from his non-traditional way of filming. And I think it's him just kind of exploring the filmic medium, how to make movies, what is making a movie entail, what a story entail, all of that sort of stuff. And Night of Cups was the one that we picked because it's it's right in the center of all of this. It's not his first attempt. It's not his last one. To me, I don't know. It's either this one or To the Wonder that's the most like fascinating of the three. But I think this one is really interesting in just like its use of structure and kind of aimlessness with all of it. And of course, I mean, one of the main limitations is that there isn't a script, that they were basically figuring out the movie while they were filming it. So, yeah, that, we thought that was a pretty interesting limitation. See, we're, we're covering it right now. John, you want to read off your summary? All right, so Rick is a successful writer in Hollywood, but his life seems listless and pointless. He lives a hedonistic lifestyle seemingly without any direction or motivation. We hear a voiceover describing a parable from the Book of Thomas about a man who is supposed to go west to Egypt to find a pearl for his father, but then forgets who he is and why he's there and does not continue on his journey. Rick's relationship with his father and brother are strained by past trauma over another brother who recently committed suicide. Rick's story is told in eight sections, each named after a tarot card. The Moon, where Rick pursues a rebellious young woman. The Hanged Man, where Rick visits his brother who lives in squalor and his father, who is losing touch with reality and his sons. The Hermit, where Rick goes to several parties hosted by wealthy celebrities. Judgment, where Rick reconnects with his ex-wife. The Tower, where Rick dates a quiet model. The High Priestess, where Rick goes to Las Vegas with a stripper he is in relationship with. Death, where Rick has an affair with a married woman, who then has a pregnancy possibly by Rick's doing, that she loses in a miscarriage. And finally, Freedom, where Rick has a reawakening about what matters in life and finds some purpose. Rick wanders the desert, ready to travel on his proverbial journey. 
my my two words would be um impressionist chaos <laughs> <laughs> because because you know i think this is like you said this is kind of terrence malick at his most himself like in some ways he's sort of indulging himself more in this film than his normal films and um as a result it's hard to kind of figure out what's going on plot wise so it's entirely the only thing you have to grab onto is the emotion and the kind of the ethereal sense of what's going on and so the plot seems impressionistic but so visually it's good obviously um but i think that carries what is such a chaotic plot that i had a hard time following what what i'm even supposed to think is going on i know we're not supposed to get that much out of the plot of this but even that i was still you know what what is the pearl um sort of it feels like there's an interesting character arc happening in the background that we don't get to see and it feels like you know it's weird you're saying that they made it up as they go along and it's weird because i feel like at the end malik maybe has a sense of what especially when he's editing it he has a sense of what happened in the film but i don't know if i was able to figure that out so it feels like there's a hidden pearl <laughs> that is the plot that we don't get to 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 know um and I think maybe a little bit Terrence Malick is the one forgetting why he's there and what he's looking for. Um, I enjoyed the movie, but I think I felt like there was something there that, that I couldn't get to that that I would have liked to see. Because there's so much good in this movie that I, I wish there was more more to grab onto, I think. Yeah, so my two words for the film are, uh, and I, I'm definitely stealing this from a C.S. Lewis title, uh, it's one of the first of his books that I actually read, aside from like Chronicles of Narnia. It's called, um, or my two words are Pilgrim's Regress, both which is like kind of on the nose because it's kind of like a piece of the Pilgrim's Progress and like they directly read from the Pilgrim's Progress at the very beginning of it. And I think it's just kind of the the parts of the story where Pilgrim, or no, is his name Christianen? Christian, the book, and or no, and the book, right? Everything okay. is one wonderfully literal in Pilgrim's Progress, right? So he's right, yes, <laughs> that's right. Which is so ironic that you know Christian Bale is playing Rick as well. So um, <laughs> it was right there for you, man. You're right, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if <laughs> Terrence Malick is just like, well, I kind of want to do a Pilgrim's Progress thing. Is there any actor named Christian? Christian but we'll Christian, call Christian him Bale. Richard. Yeah, Rick. Oh, slick Rick. And it's, I think it's like all of the parts of the story of just, you know, Christian being lost in the wilderness or in whatever it is. <laughs> um, yeah. And just kind of like the regression of his character. Like he is kind of going through like these ups and downs all throughout it of figuring out what life is about, getting advice from different people, but then also like following back into like, his habits of just sleeping around, partying, just kind of living life aimlessly. It doesn't seem like he's really working or anything like that. Yeah. His his career seems to be happening very well at him 
all yeah. the time, like in, in bits and pieces. Like he'll, he'll go to a skyscraper every thirty minutes, and they'll be like, "Here's a million dollars," and that's it. That's his entire job. There's no work involved. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's it's really interesting, and I think that's the part where Malik's just like, "Ah, we don't really we don't really care about work. Like it'd be boring to just see him sitting at a typewriter, just whittling away for a couple hours or that sort of thing." Cause- it's very funny that in this this movie that Terrence Malick's understanding of what a writer does is like basically nothing. Yeah. <laughs> because he probably could have used one. Well, I think that's like another interesting thing too, which we can get into later of just like Malick's own process with the, the quote unquote script of this and just kind of like how abstract all of it is. And so yeah, just kind of the regression of Rick's character and that you kind of see some leaning in the right direction towards the end, but not a whole lot. But before we get into our discussion, we are doing our now in film history. Night of Cups is kind of weird, where it's technically released in 2015, but that's it's basically released everywhere except for the U.S. in 2015 and isn't released in, in the U.S. until 2016, like February of 2016, but it's kind of considered a... 2015 movie because it was completed before then Malik has a weird way of actually like distributing his films like it seems kind of like he makes them and then like after that he's like ah and I just don't care all right I've made it and it's done you know <laughs> like I, I because like with every single one of them like ever since I started following Malik I've just been like okay how do I actually watch this movie like where's it at like and usually it's just like direct to Amazon or something and um yeah so this one i mean of course is just like in select theaters i remember being up in like visiting kansas city whenever song to song came out and seeing like the small indie theater was playing and i was like yes but like the theater was closed for like the one free day that i had and i was like oh no well now i'm just gonna have to like you know watch it on video and i finally saw a hidden life in theaters so i have seen one of his films now in theaters which is a, a great experience um, but other films to come out of 2015 are Spectre, The Martian, Jurassic World, The Witch, Inside Out, Revenant, Hateful Eight, The Visit, and Spotlight. So one of like the hot press items for this film was that Emmanuel Chivo Lebeski shot it, and he had just won his third consecutive Oscar for The Revenant. And so people were like, Chivo's hot stuff, like what is he doing next? And then Knight of Cups comes out, and so... That's like a little bit of free press towards it, but I mean, obviously it doesn't help out a lot in the box office. This movie makes very, very little money as with most other Malick films aside from The Tree of Life. And I think The Thin Red Line also made a fair amount as well. So it's just kind of an interesting change of pace for Malick, as you've said, John, um, where this is just kind of like this different area. And Tree of Life comes out in 2011. And I think a lot of Malik fans really kind of consider that as like the last great Malik film and like after that he kind of takes a nosedive and goes down into this trilogy and it's interesting because before this it's such an event for Malik to release a film you know he makes Badlands and Days of Heaven in the 70s and then doesn't make another movie until the 90s which is the thin red line then waits almost another 10 years to release the new world and then another uh, six to release The Tree of Life. And so people are like, oh, man, like, he's so sporadic and, like, so parsed. Like, we can't wait for it. And then, like, 
the year after the Tree of Life comes out to The Wonder comes out and everyone's like, wait, how did he make two movies in this amount of time? And then I think Voyage of Time comes out first, his documentary. Yeah, or, he was working n- on it the whole time. There was some long Right. No, 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 I'm getting this wrong. So stuff. 20 2012 yeah. is To the Wonder, 2015 is Night of Cups, and then I think 2016 is Voyage of Time, then 2017 is Song to Song. And people are like, "What? Like how is he doing all of this right now? Like is he just kind of losing it? Like is he losing his touch?" Are the reasons why Malick films are so good is because they are so parsed out and like like few and far between and it's kind of like looking a gift horse in the face <laughs> a little bit of mouth like oh we want malik <laughs> films but not too many malik films so i just find that really interesting um i remember I, I hadn't seen other than uh the new world in theaters any of his movies but i i remember whenever they came out it was a big deal and then these started coming out and it was like a couple of years after I was like, wait, he just did three movies. I'd never heard a single one of these movies. They just didn't get the, it, it was almost like immediately they stopped getting the hype. He's very reliant. I think on the, the, uh, the scarcity just, just to get people hyped up. And I think Malik has an interesting fan base too, because it's so divided based on like, his years and period and all that sort of stuff because there's you know like the original fans of like Badlands and Days of Heaven who were like oh my gosh you know this is what Malick is and I remember Tree of Life was the first of his films that I saw I was like this is like one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life I need to watch everything he's done and I want to say I watched Badlands next kind of expecting it to be exactly like Tree of Life and I was like oh this is much more cohesive and like an actual story and then I watched Days of Heaven and I was like oh this is like the same i mean of course it's flooded with a lot of like brilliant imagery and i need to rewatch them again i've seen badlands twice and i've seen days of heaven once and i love both of them but i was just like oh man i was really wanting like a lot of the the floaty etherealness of tree of life in there which there's some but it's not like to the extent of tree of life where it's like the entire movie um and so i remember actually being like a little bit disappointed by it but still loving the movies and so it must have been interesting for people who are like oh my gosh this guy is like one of the most like prolific young up-and-coming filmmakers and then like just disappears and then comes in with the thin red line which is leaning more towards like tree of life and its etherealness and like yes there is still a plot line but there's a lot of nature shots there's a lot of like voiceover there's a lot of all of that sort of stuff that has kind of become what malik is known for nowadays and i think there's kind of a fan base that starts building up around there and like with that in the new world but then when tree of life hits i mean it's just like it's insane how much money that movie makes. Like when you think about it, when you think about like the marketability of it, just kind of the esoteric nature of it, that's about, you know, 50s Texas and the creation of the universe and life and existence as we know it. For the, a movie like that to make $50 million is pretty insane. And I think that's where kind of like a new generation of Malik fans also kind of started popping up as well like one of my friends christian smith who's not he's not into like art house films or um kind of more indie films like that it's just like loves that movie and is obsessed with it and there's kind of like i think like a lot of spiritual people who really just attach onto it because it just tackles with so many different elements of life and humanity and religion and like everything like that and just kind of like encompasses so much that they're all kind of taken with it and have like that fascination for Malik 
but kind of only stay in that realm like hasn't really seen any of the other films and but it's just like oh man i love tree of life i love terrence malick and then there's other diehard fans who are like you know i'll watch whatever malick puts out and that sort of thing and um i remember watching these movies whenever they or you know night of cups and song to song whenever they came out and i was just like man it's just not hitting me like his other films like i loved everything beforehand but um, I think To the Wonder was the first of this trilogy that I saw. And I was just like, oh, shoot. Like, am I losing my affinity from Malick? Like, the imagery isn't really doing. It feels kind of, like, cliche now. And that's how I felt with, like, each one of these in the trilogy. And I was, like, really disappointed. I'm like, man, he used to be, like, one of my favorite directors. And now I, like, can't take it seriously. And I don't feel like I'm clinging on to it in the ways that, I have for his other films and then like it kind of like marred some of my view of his previous films like I think I rewatched The New World and I was like oh man now after seeing like the other ones I just feels a little cliched and all that sort of thing but I'm really glad um, that we're actually doing this because it has allowed me to revisit and I watched the trilogy again and upon rewatching it I was like wow these are masterpieces like it doesn't feel cliched it doesn't feel over the top it doesn't feel like any of that sort of stuff and I'm like yes my love of Malik is back baby like here we go and so it just makes me really happy that I'm like oh I still love this guy and I still love all the stuff that he's doing and I can see kind of the deeper level of what he's getting at with this because I think on my first viewing I was just almost more in it for like the imagery but then also still like grasping out some sort of a story and like not feeling that and just kind of feeling disconnected with it. But I definitely feel it now. It's interesting that you're saying that you didn't love the imagery because I love, I mean, I, I felt like there was all the pieces of a wonderful movie masterpiece, like you said in this. And I just kept waiting. It just kept felt like the movie was, hadn't started yet in terms of like, the visuals are great and draw you in and you understand emotionally where he's at and then you don't really get a sense of what ends the relations each of these relationships or where they're at like it, it draws you it kind of is is establishing the mood and then that's it that's the whole movie is the mood and and I wanted I was intrigued by that and then wanted to know more about you know I didn't have to be super super detailed but like they're his father and and brother like they just keep having weird arguments on rooftops for some reason and i i want to know what you know i guess actually they're probably the most defined relationship because you get a sense that there's conflict and it doesn't really matter what the conflict is the point is that there's conflict over the brother probably but then like all these these dating relationships all these flings that he has whether it's in time order or not, I have no idea what is a th- flashback and what is, you know, chronological. But you don't, I don't get a sense of what is happening with them. Like, yeah, he's 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 indulgent. That's bad. I get that. It's a, the critique of of in, of the lifestyle is is obvious. But then he doesn't seem to there doesn't seem to be anything that moves chapter to chapter. And then by the end, there's some of the talk that, you know, he's found the pearl, but what is the pearl? The idea that suffering draws him, like suffering defines 
him and draws into the transcendent with the the priest or whatever giving his speech which is good but then I'm not sure what triggers that I'm not sure what you kind of get the sense the movie knows what's going on and then but I don't I wasn't able to figure it out you know plot wise because because Pilgrim's Progress is super literal and every character is named exactly what they are so it's when I heard that, I was like, oh, great, okay. I knew this was going to be, es- you know, ethereal, esoteric, whatever. And But then I thought there would be some things, especially when they started doing the tarot cards, to grab onto. But it didn't – maybe I need to know more about the tarot cards, which I know nothing about. Uh, to the understand tarot? tarot. You don't pronounce the T? No, you don't pronounce the T. It's tarot. All right. Well, see, that's that <laughs> establishes for the audience how little I know about tarot cards. This rhymes with carrot. I legitimately did not know that till just now. <laughs> Tells you how little little I care about it. Uh, <laughs> I thought those were going to be, you know, frames for like something would come out of the the, the st- that serialized story, but I didn't really get a sense of what each character meant for him. Like there's development going on, but I'm not sure what it was. I guess I think it is interesting that he films or I guess structures the story around tarot cards because it is a pretty niche thing. Like, I guarantee you the average audience member, like, whenever they see stuff like the tower or the hermit or the hanged man, it's like they can kind of, like, infer through, like, the actions, but it's like they're not going to know the history of what that card means. They're not going to know, like, you know, what does it mean if it's reversed? What does it mean if it's, like, played in front? And, you know, all that sort of stuff. And even, like, Knight of Cups... A lot of people are like, what even is... Like, I know it's a tarot card, but I don't know what that really means. Being upside down matters something, right? Because he's upside down on the poster. I don't know what it yes. means, but it does matter. So, in, in tarot card reading, you know, you're placing cards and all that, and you place them face down. So, whenever you flip them over, if it's, like, upside down, it has a different meaning than if it's, like, right side up. So, they um, do they shuffle do they shuffle the cards? Is there a sh- do they de- shuffle the deck? I think they like lay them out and then draw them out individually is what I've seen of it. So there's um, no it's just oh my God. This isn't poker, there's, John. <laughs> well, but you're 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 reading Oh my gosh. So someone is putting cards out and then saying here's which ones you are and that's it. There's no no, there's like there's like different spots. Like I I watched a couple like videos and did some research into all of this, and it like <laughs> I feel really bad because I know this is not like what you're supposed to do, but I'm like, oh, it seems like an interesting board game, and I'm like a huge board game fanatic, and part of me is like, oh, I kind of want to get it and like do that because there's like different like placement. It's like you know, placement number one is you, placement number two is your challenge, placement number three is this, this, and this, and how you overcome things. And it's not like the common misconception of tarot is like it's not a fortune telling thing. It's just like kind of supposed to be like a guide for your spiritual journey and your physical journey. So I think it kind of plays into like you're asking a question or you're going through something and then you do a tarot reading and that like is supposed to help guide you through whatever challenge you're facing, whatever person you meet, like all of that sort of stuff. So there's no shuffling. There's no river. That's what you're saying. Maybe there is shuffling. I mean, because you, you have to get the cards in that order somehow. I I can. I, I thought there was randomness remember. to which one gets picked, but I guess yes. it's just the person. You, you like splay them out in like a line, and then you pick from different sides of it. But they're all face down, but, so you don't know what you're picking. 
but do they <laughs> I don't know why this matters to me it's like do they shuffle or are you it depends on what you the last person got because I don't they know didn't let me let me look this up now I, I mean I'm, you, I'm you putting probably too have much to luck. shuffle it somehow because yeah just, you can't just they're have big the cards same. they're big cards so they're they're hard to they are big cards I don't know I do I will commend the artwork on them I think they look really cool well um wow I was looking up do you shuffle and like before I even finished it the first thing to pop up was do you shuffle tarot cards your phone's listening to you right that's true well it depends on what no, yeah you shuffle them okay I don't know why I, you give them a knock a couple times and then you shuffle them there's just something weird about like that was like, it hooked me in that scene it was like because the shuffling is such a not it's such a w- normal thing and yeah. to, to to take this presu- presumptively you know presenting itself as so spiritual or whatever mm-hmm. to have this shuffling it's, of the deck it's just, yeah it's like te- practically it has to happen right but it's right just tarot i don't know how to say it yeah okay all of the sort of like reverse stuff so yeah i think it plays into the poster i think the poster is like excellently designed i wish they had done it where it wasn't like each of the individual ones but just rick's one of it saying knight of cups at the top him flipped upside down because i i really really like that design yeah it's an interesting visual this is not related to what we're talking about but i was expecting more of a journey i guess that was my problem is that i was expecting more of a journey i didn't literally need it to move physically i love a good road trip movie but i love a good physical journey it's a really easy way to latch onto the the metaphorical journey but uh i was expecting progress in the pilgrim's progress thing uh adaptation or whatever but i didn't i don't know did i miss the progress uh, what I'm, you know, that's my question did i miss the progress right so i'll get into that from two viewpoints one Whenever I watched it for the first time, I think I kind of felt like you were. I was just like, okay, I didn't really feel anything happening. It just kind of felt like random things were thrown in, which to an extent, yes, they were. But upon watching it on a second time, I really realized how handpicked and curated a lot of the stuff is. Like whenever I watched it again, I was like, wow, it doesn't feel like there's a shot out of place. Like everything has its spot that it needs to be in. And I think the separation by tarot cards really really helps with that actually and helps you kind of like get into those different phases and that those are kind of supposed to be your like visual and mental cues as to like what is going on in the journey because i i i'm able to see it more so now where there's like the first one where it's the moon where he's talking to imogen poots's character about the love thing and she's like you know you don't want love you want a love experience and that's kind of like setting up the character of like okay we know what he's about now he's kind of he's pretty flirty he just like gets around with women all of that sort of stuff and you see that like aloofness with him and then you define him more with like the hanged man with him and his brother and his family and you see kind of that more personal side and see like kind of how distraught he is that he is um, the favored son and that his his brother played by Wes Bentley is you know dealing with drugs and homelessness and all of that sort of stuff and his father just kind of lifts him up and that he seems like to be the glue and then throughout like the other relationships there's the one with uh, the the model I'm forgetting the actress's name right now yeah, where it starts off like you're like, okay, is you know it going to be just another fling? And then it kind of turns into more spiritualism. And she's like, you know, is this a friendship we have? And all of like the imagery with her and like uh, Buddha 
and kind of leaning them onto a more like spiritual journey. And I think after that, there is kind of just this different feel for it. Or sorry, I think the hermit is in between that because he goes to like the party with Antonio Banderas. And yeah, so you, you get that's what's hard for me is that you get the at the beginning, you get the kind of indulgentness. And then you get this, you see with the moon what kind of relationship he has, which is sort of shallow. And and then you see with his family that he's sort of weirdly, he's present, but he's not present, you know. So he'll he'll go visit his brother, he'll go visit his father, right? He's there, but he's not really engaging with them. And, and so you get that. But then you get the, the full indulgence well, let me pull. What is the order here? I gotta remember. But he, he goes to the party, and then you get fully, you really fully seeing the, the debauchery and the and the indulgence and just how wasteful the the partying is. And then it sort of seems like you're doing it again. And then, the, I guess my problem with the what was your, what's the 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 models card called? Is that the tower? Yeah, because he gets robbed, which I did not. Um, Man, but buy a security camera or something, man. I can't even believe that happened to him. And then they sort of were like, hey, you don't have anything. Like, you, your life is, why don't you have more stuff? So that was interesting. You're empty. Uh, but then the model, I guess, the problem I had with that, where I didn't catch that, is that everything, you're not seeing a lot of physical, like you're seeing around, you're seeing around the romance, sort of, in each of these. You're not seeing, a, and and so that line, if it wasn't for that line about I don't want to break another man's heart or whatever or we're just friends or what the type of thing she says, I would have no idea that wasn't another fling because it's you're seeing visually it's the same thing that you're seeing previously, at least for me. Maybe rewatching is different, but like it's the weird, you know, they're putting their hands up all over and, and like it, it doesn't seem visually different than the previous relationships because you don't you're not you're seeing the same things over and so I guess the spiritual part is so vague that I didn't catch that it was more meaningfully transcendent or spiritual or whatever with her versus previous ones I guess it's implied he's searching at that point yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why it uses such similar imagery towards the beginning, but then ultimately changes whenever she goes into the house and is doing yoga and praying and all of that. And there's like no physical contact really between the two of them. And that's kind of where that dividing line is. And I think she transforms from being another fling to being kind of like a spiritual guide in that sense. Okay. I mean, it's a lot of like reading between the lines and I think there there's a really interesting use of like repetition of imagery because a lot of like the relationship stuff is shot in the same sort of way, but there's you get different reactions from Christian Bale throughout. And like you you start seeing kind of more actual joy with the more intimate of the relationships and like I think one of the most interesting ones is Judgment with Kate Blanchett's character. Uh, his ex-wife and I I find that part just fascinating where she's kind of like talking about his like self-destructiveness and you know there's no nudity there's like a couple like kisses and that sort of thing but like it's nothing like really even deeply sensual and then like cut between that and like her you know working with burn victims and healing like in a hospital 
And I think that for Rick is kind of a split one in just like his inner self feeling like, what am I doing? Like, am I really helping people with what I'm doing? And then also kind of the revolt afterwards that he goes on with the high priestess whenever he goes to like the strip club. And I think he just like feels so barren and shallow that he's just like, okay, I need to be like seeped in my shallowness and then goes to the strip club and starts hanging out with her. Wasn't it getting what I'm Charlie blanking. What triggers him to go to the strip club? Is it getting robbed or is it the breaking that the, the, the falling apart? It seems like there's a rekindling and then a falling back apart of the, of the ex-wife. A little bit. Yeah, because I think she ultimately rejects him because I was I was wondering if he kind of goes there to hopefully reconcile and maybe start things new again. And then it seems like, um, you know, she's more focused on her work and it's just like, you know, this is not good for either of us. And so he leaves and then falls into the strip club and hanging out with Teresa Palmer's character. And she's like, you know, life is about experience and like, you know, I see the world now because I did drugs one time and like <laughs> that's how you truly experience the world and all that sort of stuff. So, so um, Creed, you, you know that I, I uh, we, we disagree on the, the level of beauty of the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, I, can, I consider it to be an ugly city. Uh, and Terrence Malick does great work to make it look not ugly in this. But it's still absurd to me that she's like, let's have experiences. Let's go to Las Vegas, which he makes look beautiful too. But there's a shallowness to it, obviously. It's like, why are you? Oh, definitely. Why are you going there? Why are you? I thought the movie was going to be Journey to Las Vegas for some reason, but uh, I guess I will rewatch it. But like, I I do wish there was more. I mean, I don't need that much. Just a little bit of things to to hang on to to figure out what his reaction is because he's a cipher basically the whole movie you're implying it and you can interpret it but i wish there was a little bit more of actual things happening because i like this style of filmmaking that malik does and i want it to be a little bit more driving action and reaction like i want to know what things are causing other things sometimes just just a little bit just so you know some progress because you're i know you were you're what you're saying makes a lot of sense but i'm not I need to rewatch it because it just seems like there's this, like I said, there's a story there that's really interesting and intriguing and it's, it's below the surface or it's just out of reach and you kind of got to make it up. And, and I kind of want to know what the real story is, you know, and it's because of how he made the film. But so what happens then he, because after he's the, hanging out with Teresa Palmer's character is whenever he meets up with Natalie Portman, I think that's kind of like reaching into a further like actual relationship and showing the consequences of being in a relationship where she like loves him but is also torn because of like the death of her child and like not knowing if it's like her husband's or hers but then like in that actual like seriousness of the relationship you see more joy where you see it's an invested thing like you know that they've been together for a while and um, seeing them on the beach and on the pier and all that sort of stuff and just like, you know, how much fun and joy they're having with each other. And it's not like it, it's not as mirrored with the previous relationships where it's just like him kind of chasing after the woman and that sort of thing and then like grabbing them and wrestling around with them. And with this one, there's much more like like mutual pursuit and them just kind of like holding on to each other and like him picking her up and like dipping her in the water and all of that sort of stuff. Okay. I had a hard time distinguishing the level of seriousness of any of these. Like, it seems like it's all wrestling, 
you know, like you're picking her up, chasing around the room, weird hand things where they're both holding each other's hands and going up and down, you know. That was just a lot of that with all of them. So I guess, again, I need to rewatch it a couple times because you kind of, I thought kind of implied there was a more seriousness to the relationship, but I didn't get that from the, what they were actually doing together as much. I think one of the reasons why it just works is because it's, you know, two of the finest actors of our generation. I mean, I love Natalie Portman so well. And she, just like the way that she like looks at him, I'm like, wow, that is a yeah, person in you, love. It seems like that, the that this entire movie is super reliant on the actors facial expressions and and even with that i don't i understood that relationship more than the other ones because of her uh, what a good job what a good actress she is um i don't understand what happens after that it's sort of implied he goes to a church and hears from a priest but what's the pearl i guess i don't know i mean that's like legit um what we were trying to figure out whenever we were watching it afterwards. What I think the pearl is, is honest relationships. Because I don't think he gets it at the end. Did you say, like, you thought he gets the pearl? I thought he either gets the pearl or starts the journey to go get the pearl. Yes, but that's what so I think. it's so vague. It's so vague. But what is the, you know, meaning? Mm -hmm. He doesn't have meaning then yet. He just is looking for meaning. Mm -hmm. But... The actions don't change that much. Like at the end, he's st the the relationship. I don't even know the woman at the end. Do you don't even do you even see her face? Barely. I, mean, I don't know what what that is. What, yeah. what that you know, sort of the tone of the movie seems to imply there's a better relationship there, or right. that that there's more substance, or that he's searching for something better now. But the change is so subtle that it's just like, what what, what happened? What what? Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, what I think this is, is this is like the part of movies that like is usually not shown because at the beginning, there's all the imagery of Christian Bale walking through the desert, kind of like wandering around. And I think that's him on the start of a search. And then he gets distracted and pulled in to L.A. and like sucked in the lifestyle and isn't able to pursue the pearl. But then after, like, at the end of it is him in the desert again. And it's like, okay, his quest is kind of continuing now. And it's like, that seems like the spot where most movies would pick up at the beginning of the journey. Like, this feels like it's happening right before the main part of the movie is actually going to happen. Yeah, yeah. That's really... It felt like you just started the journey. And so, like... It's part of it is the... the, 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 the everything at the beginning implies something that doesn't happen to the end, basically. And then you get hours and hours and hours of beautifully shot, very subtly different relationships that don't seem to drive him anywhere. I still enjoyed it. It wasn't a bad film, but it, it feels like there's a story that to be told that didn't get told. Mm -hmm. um, I also just feel like it's the aimlessness is so on purpose, and there is kind of like the monotonous nature of it that is really ingenious in filmmaking, and that oftentimes can be like, oh, well, we can't do that because it's going to be like too vague and not really convey it and I feel like this is like how he feels in the Hollywood system you know just kind of like not really knowing what he's supposed to be doing not really know how he fits into this culture and has kind of like lost his voice in it you know I mean he's just very reclusive so I, I doubt he's going to like all of these big parties and all that sort of stuff but yeah even just kind of like the the interview or not the interviews but the um 
the scenes where Christian Bale like actually has like semi work going on, like the meetings with the screenwriters where like Dan Harmon pops up and all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's just like that seems like the places where he's the most out of place. And Christian Bale's take on the character is he's a screenwriter, so he's a man of words, but who has lost the use of words. Yeah, well, it's funny because like I don't get the sense that Terrence Malick is someone that ever got stuck in Hollywood doing monotonous work. I mean, he's pretty much from the beginning, right, done whatever he wanted. Right. And had people ready to film or, you know, work with him. Like, he's been a rock, not a rock star, but he's been somebody that people have wanted to work with from the very beginning. And he doesn't do that. I mean, what did he do for 20 years? I I was trying to find this out. Like, what did he do? Did he just retire? He went to France for like 10 years. I've heard like mixed reports of different things. I think one of the most cohesive ones I found was he finished making Days of Heaven and he's just like, that was so exhausting. I don't want to direct again. And then just kind of like disappeared. And so I went what to did France he do? for a couple of years. He started working on a film called Q, which I think a lot of the ideas for that ended up as the Tree of Life. But what, what did he do to make money for 20, 10 years? Did he I just don't make know. so much money he didn't have to... It's just... That's as weird as this, this movie is sort of in the background. There's this implied career that's happening that's fueling his indulgence and his, his hedonism. And yet, I don't get the sense that Terrence Malick has ever had a dense... He hasn't had a particularly dense career. So he's sort of done mm-hmm. what he wants. Um, but he's speaking to an experience that other people have in Hollywood, I'm sure. Um I guess the death of the child really affects him, I guess, is the implication. And he, you know, there's the the idea that suffering binds you to the transcendent because it's beyond you. I mean, in all of his films, I feel like there's this yearning for nature and naturalness and, like, what is true to the yeah. earth. And, I mean, that's apparent in one of Jessica Chastain's opening lines in The Tree of Life. It's like there's, like, the two ways of the world. The way of grace. I can't remember the way of nature. Way of nature. Yeah. And so I think there is that where Christian Bale is like so sucked up into the city, and that, you know, the only times he gets like these glimpses of nature are like one when he's really on his journey at the beginning and at the end, but also whenever uh, he's with Kate Blanchett's character and she's like very healing and like very motherly. And even with like Natalie Portman's character. Of like them just being in the ocean. I know there's a lot of ocean shots, but I feel like the one with Natalie Portman's character really stands out in that regard. And aside from Song to Song and and his like 2000s onward films, I feel like the men usually represent kind of the way of like mankind, like the destructiveness and like all of that. And that women represent like nature and like connectedness to the earth, whether that be like Pocahontas in the New World or Jessica Chastain's character in The Tree of Life, all that sort of stuff. Song to Song is kind of the one that stands out where Ryan Gosling's character is actually the one more nature-bound and from small-town Texas or Oklahoma or wherever it is. But I think there is kind of that subplot all throughout and that there is that that yearning for man that we're looking in the wrong spots for things. Yeah, and it was I was watching a, a video essay about this that was tying this to Kierkegaard. It was making what I think is a mistake that a lot of people make with Kierkegaard, which was assuming a secular existentialism that I don't think he has. I think he has a... He would not call himself an existentialist, I don't think. 
he was trying to deal with uh, a religious Christianese culture, you know, in his lifetime, that he was challenging to be personal, but but it was a personal relationship, a a, a desire to seek the transcendent, and he kind of had to build, kind of he felt that he had to tear things down and start over because the state church was so messed up. The, but this video was tying this to Kierkegaard, but doing so in a the assumption that the 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 leap of faith is very much about yourself. So I think that essay missed the point because there's definitely a transcendence here that's beyond just a personal transcendence of feeling eternal. There's a there's a serving of something beyond yourself, and you get the pat the the priest is giving that speech near the end about how his suffering is what makes him more you know was a human or I don't know what the line was but the suffering bind, binds you to the eternal because it, it makes you know there's definitely a, a a gospel message implied in that and I guess that's that kind of threw me off because it didn't seem like it was building to that and then it didn't seem to pay it off at all after so there's this one spot where he's sort of explaining what's going you know conceptually through the priest but then i'm not sure why he's in that you know did he just go to the church like then there's the scenes of st louis which i thought oh he's going home but then he's back in la like there's a lot of the timeline i think falls apart at the end where i no longer understand where he's at what's the past what's the future what's anything and so what what do you make of that ending is just with the priest and then after he's just starting to think about stuff and he hasn't really come to any conclusions or right i mean he's not an active character and i think all throughout is just him getting advice from different people while living life and just kind of like trying to apply some of those principles here and there and i think that's just kind of another voice that he hears but maybe one to like set him more on the right track other than just like do drugs so you can fully experience life I, I mean, I honestly think it's just one of Terrence Malick's favorite things to just throw actors into churches. Because, I mean, that's in so many of his movies, especially like the 2000s films onward. Um, you know, whether it be like Brad Pitt in church or Ben Affleck in church and Olga Kurilenko in church and Rachel McAdams in church and Ryan Gosling in church. And like, you know, just all of these like characters, like I just want to see them in church. So I think that's just something that, he really likes doing and uh, I think kind of plays to his worldview a bit because it is interesting that even though this film is like centered around tarot cards, there's still like the Pilgrim's Progress and the Hymn of the Pearl and like all of these other like more Christian imagery sorts of things. And so he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's not it's not Christian stuff, but it actually well, it's very strange because you've got the tarot cards and then but then the the hymn of the pearl is from a gnostic gospel. So it's it's a apocrypha. It's not or it's not even, you know, it's not considered even a, a Christian text. It's a gnostic text. So I guess maybe I just don't know what his opinion of not it seems like he would be someone that would be falling into more Gnostic themes possibly, but it doesn't seem to pay off at the end. Because the whole idea is you're searching, you know, the searching for yourself, 
you can get into that sense that the the human body is is completely evil and the the spirit is the only part that's good that's gnosticism and so when you are talking about the way of grace but he doesn't seem to come down one way or the other on the the nature of the human physical experience but there's an implication there maybe that that he's sort of straying a little bit into this idea that the spirit needs to be free in nature uh and that the physical world is is bad but you know it it doesn't seem to he just seems to be i he just seems like he likes that parable and it and it fits his story more than making a gnostic explicitly gnostic it's above my pay grade i don't know it does seem like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get paid off by the end you know maybe even having that stuff at the end would have been like okay he's starting his journey he's starting to wake up the father is god but also his father but his father doesn't say anything to him who's sending him me- you know it's god sending him messages cuz his father's not sending him any messages trying to wake him up i don't can barely tell what his father's even doing is his fa- what does his father do does he have like a one man show or something I mean, I assume he's pretty wealthy and has like a high-paying job because of he's like the party Hollywood he guy. was at and like the big office. That was Maybe. a weird freaking office. Why was his hand? There's this, all these things it that are popping up. Like, why was his hands bleeding? What was that about? No, I think it was just like him washing his hands in blood, which that was really interesting imagery. Yeah, because that's what's. Oh man, so much of this movie is very physical and real in the real world you know it's it's dreamlike because it's it's strange imagery that we're not used to seeing with the parties and stuff but it's it's very much this is happening and that that was what actually was interesting to me based on the few other movies i've seen whereas it seemed like a lot of the, the the visuals were not nature they were they were more uh real world stuff than he usually has but then i guess there's that that's the only thing I can think of that's like, what is this? What is that? What is going on? That's kind of more ethereal. That's like a dream sequence where something bizarre is happening. I mean, my kind of personal take with Malik films is that you can never actually tell what is actually happening in the real world in them. The line between physical and implied or uh, like metaphorical is so thin that you can never really tell, like, is this person actually doing this? Are they actually acting that way? Or is this just representing how they feel? And I would explain I feel like, all, all the bizarre arguments on the rooftops. Because that's, yeah. that's, I guess, where it was weird for me is that most of it's very much these are people are doing this in real real life. And then there's these scenes where it's not that strange, but you think, like, why are they there? Why are they, you know, wandering around in this room, you know? So it's more emotional, which I I didn't have a problem with that. I it was just there was that one part that I remember that was like, why is his why is he washing his hands in blood? You know, and then his father, I I wrote in the summary that he was losing touch because it seems like he's he said something about like losing his memory or you know there's a relationship there. It's just kind of off screen, but that um essentially. Yeah, and I think, especially with these these three films, that he wants them to feel more like memories than like an actual story, because that's just what it feels like to me, where there's a lot of it. I mean, it seems like it's someone trying to remember how things were. 
like you were saying with like his his dad and his brother they probably weren't on the top of a skyscraper arguing about that but maybe that's what it feels like and i think one of the things that really led me to think that is like all of the scenes whenever they're arguing and yelling at each other it's just like very quiet quiet almost silent like you can't even really hear what they're saying and it's like yeah of course you're not going to remember what they're arguing about because if someone's yelling at you you're not going to remember that like not going to remember what they're actually trying to tell you yeah normally i would be really really working working really really hard to try and figure out what's you know like a nolan movie that's why i love it it's like the whole challenge is what you know figuring out sorting the movie into press present future or whatever i i didn't even try in this because it doesn't seem like it matters it doesn't it doesn't no, seem like it, it doesn't. we're supposed to care <laughs> which that uh reminds me of our kind of miscommunication of like what I thought you thought about this film because I remember getting a text from you midway through the week of you saying like something to the like the extent of like watching this made me feel like a plebe watching Inception for the first time and I was like wow I don't remember it being that complicated because that was before I'd rewatched and I was like what well let's watch no, no no let's watch let's watch what I what I said what did I say here I said what did I just watch and then I said, this is what normies felt watching Inception. That's right. But I was I was talking about Tenet. I was not talking yeah. about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but we totally had this short, short conversation assuming it was about this movie, which... <laughs> no, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's part of what I like about Terrence Malick is that I'm always trying to solve a puzzle. And with him, you just feel. You just feel it. And... um. I just want the feeling and the and the the ambiance to be um in service of something, some concrete story. You know, like and I think the hidden life what's well, interesting we can let's talk about the the script stuff, but I think there's interesting talking about what he how he's reacted to this era because he has opinions. Well, the script of this is really interesting because there's like all of like these mixed reports where some people are like no, there was no script whatsoever. And then uh, interviews with Chivo, he was saying, no, Terrence Malick wrote like 400 to 600 pages of like script and dialogue for this <laughs> pre-production. And he, Malick goes up to him and is like, I don't want you to read the script. Like, I don't want you to read or know anything about it. You just kind of have to do whatever like feels natural for you. I don't want you to really know ever what's happening. And like with Christian Bale, he didn't give him a script whatsoever. I think they talked about his character a little bit. Nothing. Like, I, they talked about, like, what his character was like. So whenever Bale would be on set, like, and some of the other actors would get pieces of a script, he'd be, like, looking over their shoulder trying to figure out, okay, like, what is going to happen today? Like, what am I going to be doing? And that's, like, everyone's experience with this. Like, you look up interviews with every single person on this. They're like, I didn't know what I was doing. I would get on set and I'd be like, who's my character? What am I? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? And, like, everyone on the crew is just like, we don't know what this movie is. Like, we don't know what's going on. We don't know any of that sort of stuff. It's it's just so much in Malik's head and all of his ideas kind of culminating in this. And, like, for the party scene with Antonio Banderas, where there's, like, a lot of comedians that show up you know there's like nick kroll and uh joe latrulio and um thomas lennon i think is there and all of them like whenever they got on set malik just gave them each a line from a poem and they're like you know what is this is this our dialogue are we supposed to say this and he's like i don't know do you want more (laughs) no i think you got it 
I actually love that though. I am of two minds on this style because I actually like especially in a Hollywood movie having these people not have any lines just be yourself basically uh at these parties makes total sense to me. And even even having almost all of the dialogue done that way makes sense too. The problem is not letting the actors know what their character is. The main characters, like what is their motivation? It's almost like Malik want I don't know, you're t- was the torpedoing is the is the term, yeah. right? Torpedoes where he what is that? Exactly defined it. So he would he would get actors and basically just throw them into a scene where they weren't supposed to be. So like Teresa Palmer's character, she was only supposed to be on set the one day um, in the strip club, and then Malik was like, "Oh, do you want to stay on and be a torpedo?" She's like, "Sure." And so they were filming the next day in like the streets of L.A. It was Christian Bale just walking around, and then Malik's just like, "Okay, go in there and start talking to him." So, like, she shows up, and he had, like, no idea that she was going to be there or other actors that he would just throw into a scene to have that, like, spontaneity. So, like, Christian Bale just, like, never knew what was going on the entire time of filming this. Like, because there'd just be random people that he didn't even know was going to be in the movie that would just be thrown in all of a sudden. It's just weird because it's, like, that doesn't seem realistic to me in terms of I don't know what reaction he was trying to get. And it almost seems like he was throwing stuff at the wall and he internally knew what the plot vaguely was supposed to be, the arc at least, and then he would just edit that in. And and so, wait, so is is she the character that he goes to Las Vegas with? Yes. So, <laughs> I love that. They're just like, all right, we're going to go to another city for this one character that wasn't going to be in the movie until two seconds ago. I mean, there's, I guess it makes it more realistic that he's kind of being pulled along by these different people, but it seems like doing the entire movie that way doesn't work. You know, this is the limitation, right, that he puts on himself. I think he went too far with these movies, and I think he knows he went too far with these movies because... I don't think, you know, we're talking about all these these limitations and, and, and you have to take a limitation that you have and you have to work around it. And it seems like he just wanted to see what happened. And I, I think he learned from it that he needs a little bit more structure. I don't know if you've seen this quote, but there was something on The Hidden Life where he basically said, I've repented of not having a script. Like, I've repented of not having the structure. And I think he's right that he needed to do that because don't he's such a visually amazing director and he's always been so um spontaneous i mean what's the faint have you did you tell me the story about thin red line where is martin sheen i or no um what's his face forgot who who jim caviezel no it was someone else but they're on they're in the 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 japanese they're gonna might have been sean penn yeah sean penn telling the story they're going to go into this, have this long take, complicated scene in the Japanese village or whatever, or the base, something, where it's, you know, everything's choreographed and everything, and they, they have to drive in on a vehicle, and the things are happening, I mean, there's so many actors involved with this, and they're about to start, and he go, he's like, stop everything, I have to go film this bird. Yeah. Yeah, and so... I like that, and I think that adds a lot to it, but taking that and making the entire movie essentially that doesn't work. 
And and the reason I say it doesn't work is you know I think I know people have have lauded these three movies as as some masterpieces because no one else does this. That's worthy, I guess, that that it's unique. But I actually don't think this is any better than what his other movies are like because yeah, no, he's I, already I so visually be- it's so beautiful that that going hundred percent spontaneous hurts his ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is like my liking of them in order is to the wonder knight of cups and song to song because i think he's figuring out the further in that he gets that it's like okay maybe this isn't as viable of a way of doing it i think knight of cups is the most structured of them but to the wonder is kind of the most like coherent because there is testing with that and there's still kind of some leftover effects of tree of life that you feel throughout it as well and Song to Song, I think is good. It's definitely my least favorite of all of his films, but it's just kind of all over the place too. And that's the one that has the most dialogue in it, which I thought would really aid it, but I think it actually deterred a lot from it because it would just be like dialogue that would kind of be thrown into the nether almost, like that it almost just didn't matter. And I think that was actually more confusing for people where they'd be like, wait, why are they talking about this? And then, like, nothing happened from it. I haven't seen that, but that makes sense because I actually think one of the best parts of his style is that he doesn't... I mean, the the, the most spiritual thinking, the most transcendent thinking, the most meaningful, substantive... It's all internal thought. And so everything he does is people not reacting to the world, usually, and then having internal discussion so i could imagine how him doing normal dialogue all of a sudden takes away one of the things that lets you know what's going on internally which is helpful um that was the part of this movie that made the most sense to me was what you know that you learn a lot from those and so i could imagine him particularly getting rid of that would not help one of the things i really appreciated about one of my film classes one of the films we had to watch was 2001 a space odyssey which is one of my favorite movies i absolutely love it but a lot of the people in the class were like, ah, we don't think we're going to like it. And my professor, Sned, who was just on our last Brazil episode, he just said, like, be free with yourself to watch this movie. Like, don't feel like you have to constrain yourself to watch it like you, how you would a normal film. So, like, whatever avenue you take to watch this movie and to understand it, that's what you need to do. And um, he's like, like, for some people, it helps to see it as like a space ballet. And one of my other friends who hate, watched it before and hated it watches the space ballet and he's like, I actually really like it now and think that. And I feel like that's kind of like what you have to do with Malick's films is you have to see them as almost just like purely visual and like let that do the telling of the story instead of like grasping on for words. Because to me, one of the most like transcendent like scenes where I'm like, I get exactly what's going on right now is actually at the party and you see like you're underneath the water in the pool and you see the tennis ball going in and the dog going in and like reaching for it and not being able to grab it and like all of this imagery of dogs like jumping into the pool and like struggling against the current trying to get the tennis balls and none of them can get it and it's like oh that's what's going on right now you know and that's like the center of this movie I wrote a note down for that part actually that that struck at me because I thought it was sort of a perfect metaphor for the whole movie because I, I remember seeing the first dog goes in. It's like, oh, wow. Like that is, it's not in your face, but it's such a good visual for the whole the whole story, right? Just out of reach. And then another dog comes in. 
and then another and he does like four or five and it's like all right i get it, i get it like this this is not that subtle of a, of a message but you do it five times it's like a little you cut a little bit sooner i think it would be better so i think it's like you know you're 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 telling me where he's at over and over and over and over and over and then nothing is changing and i get where he's at i get what's going on and it's hard for me to figure out you know movement beyond that but it's a very powerful message about where he's at it's just really long oh man i was thinking too it'd be interesting if he made like a russian arc-esque film in the sense of like trying to tell the story of like a museum through like visual imagery like you wouldn't have to do a one-shot sort of thing but i think it'd be interesting to stick them in like one place and just be like okay tell the history of this yeah that's kind of the opposite movie right because they're both ends of kind of the possibility of digital like one end you have this ability to do this one super complicated choreographed take and then Malik I feel like is the other end of that or he's he's used digital better than maybe anyone by being spontaneous he he said he could not do what he does with film and it's weird because you end up with a result that's sort of on the surface similar where you have these beautiful images combined with sort of ethereal dialogue that doesn't quite make sense. But I think Malik's career is maybe doing the things I didn't love, like I wish were fixed about Russian Ark. I think his career is sort of doing those right in some ways because he, he tells the story well, I think. And uh he just needs a little he just needs a little bit of something to hold on to i think because um it's so wonderful and so beautiful and then you just need it doesn't have to be that much at all i mean i i loved loved a hidden life and you don't need that mu- you know the relationship between the the husband and the wife is so important and then you know what he's doing and there's not that much plot. It's just him. They're kind of sitting in the consequences of what he's doing over and over. And yet it's super powerful because it's it's the overwhelming challenge of, of, of people slowly turning against them. And then the wife has to deal with his wife has to deal with, you know, people in the town and and, and the happiness drains away that they had. And it's not that much to grab onto, honestly, but it's enough to really make for an incredibly powerful story there's not as i think he's learned that he just needs a little bit of structure and it does it goes a long way Mm -hmm. and i think one thing that a lot of people were critiquing about him is that with this trilogy it's the first time where he's actually set something in modern day and it's not too distracting with to the wonder because it's middle of nowhere bartlesville oklahoma and I mean, there's some stuff in Paris, but for the most part, it just kind of feels more like in flow with it. Um, but seeing him shoot like downtown L.A. and at like these big rock concerts in Austin, Texas, is kind of like off putting. And you're like, oh, what? But he seemed like so nature oriented and all of that. And to see him like shoot like strip clubs and like bars and like all of that sort of stuff, you're like, what is going on? And it's it's pretty jarring and very uh very much detracts from like his usual i guess location imagery interesting yeah i love the visuals i loved the change of pace too i thought it was him kind of proving he could do that really effectively 
It's just that that didn't then get used for... Like, there's a great scene, there's a traffic scene where he's driving through traffic, and I don't know what, how he filmed that. It just seemed different than your normal time-lapse of driving. And I was like, that's so cool, but it doesn't really mean anything it doesn't mean you know he's traveling yeah, yeah he's traveling but like there wasn't it didn't really it's just thrown in there and so like i think the visuals were great i loved i you know i think he could do this again but the story is just the visuals help you get close to the story but not close enough and it's just with that out of reach maybe rewatching would help but uh i do think you should be able to get the point of the movie after one viewing yeah, uh, that also s- sort of applies to Tenet as well, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, one view- viewing, I should basically get the gist of of what it is, and then you know, I I will also say that in the hands of another director, I don't think this would have worked as well as it does with Malik. I think he has just such an understanding of kind of the through line, even if there isn't like a quote unquote script and more just like ideas, and he's forming it as they're filming it. I think he has this intentionality with it that is really masterful and can could otherwise seem lazy in the hands of another yeah. filmmaker. Because I remember thinking like, oh, it'd be nice to not have to have a script. Like, just go out and film stuff. Like, that's super easy. It's super fun to make something like that. And I tried doing it for like a short film. And like, when I got to the cutting room floor, I'm like, this is impossible. This is garbage. <laughs> this is trash. Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And so it gave me a lot of respect for what he did with it because I was like oh it seems like an easy cheap way to make uh, a short film without having to have like real actors or dialogue or that sort of thing but it's it's hard to do and I don't think anyone else could pull it off as best as well as he could and I'm yeah and I'm pretty still pretty appreciative I think of what this film turned out and like a lot of times my criticism of my my harshest criticism of any movie is something that I feel is just so close to like perfection and you know like our our russian arc i wished it was you know the things i wished it was a little bit more um easy to grab onto just because i felt like it was so close if they hadn't made all those sacrifices to something compl- even better right right but with this there's a little bit of that cuz it's like oh man i i really like this one it would have been interesting to see what he said but with terence malick what's so great is like every movie he does before this and arguably after this is a masterpiece. It is, he just does masterpieces and that's it. So it doesn't feel like a missed opportunity as much because like, it, it's not like, oh man, you were so close. He's gotten there. He's gotten there multiple times. He's done it with Thin Red Line. He's done it with, some people think, A New World, uh, The Tree of Life. I think The Hidden Life, like Badlands and especially, you know, Days, Days of, of Heaven, Heaven. like yeah. those, those are he did it. Like he's he's done the thing that most directors do their whole career, trying to reach this mountaintop. He just like goes there every time, right? And and so this one time that he doesn't, there's three times that he doesn't or whatever. It's like eh, you know, he's experimenting. It's fine. It doesn't really bother me. I don't I don't really miss that substantively the uh the the missing story of rick that i didn't get to have yeah and i mean the fact that all of these big name actors will just throw themselves at this and i 
I can't remember what the budget is. It's it's tiny. The fact that they could afford everyone is absolutely insane. That's an argument for him not coming out with a million movies because, I mean, think about Thin Red Line, especially. Oh my gosh, yeah. The, 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 the cast alone, because people wanted to be in a Malick movie. And if he starts making them every year, he's going to lose that, you know, a little bit. Um, it's always interesting to me that he is so committed to in these to be spontaneous, but he's doing like it doesn't seem to bother him to use famous actors at all. Some directors would be like, I you know, Star Wars. I don't want I want nobodies because then you you can it doesn't distract you. But he seems to have no problem with that whatsoever, which is for an, a director of his type kind of seems different a little bit. Well, I think what's good about him too and. Uh, maybe an underrated part of his directing skills is that he can just pull each of these actors into the world. And it's like you see them and you're like, oh, they're acting like they're in a Malick movie, which is pretty hard to do for a lot of these people. Like, especially at that party scene, um, just like a lot of the actors who are in it, they're like, oh, I've never seen a Malick film before. Like, I don't know what it's what he does, really. Like, you just know of him. You know, he's a legend. So, of course, I'm going to be in his movie. And yet they just still feel like natural in it is pretty amazing. And the fact that he takes on a lot of these actors that you would not see in art house films otherwise and like make them believable, like Ben Affleck. I'm like, he's great into the wonder and he fits in. And like, it's like, yeah, of course he's in that or Brad Pitt or just a lot of these, especially like masculine actors who are like, oh, they're just kind of like the big meatheads that are in these other movies and yet makes them seem like tender and emotional and like and a different type of like stoicism and all that is just really fascinating to me it's super interesting that he that you're saying a lot of those people at those parties don't know who he is just know he's a uh a master it's perfect because that's the type of person that would populate that type of party is someone that's like i just know he's a legend so i have to be in his movie but i don't know his art you know it's this weird thing where he can make this movie that the biggest thing that strikes out at me with all the vagueness is a humongous critique of hollywood culture like just overwhelming and then he could still like these people like he doesn't i don't think these people get that he's mock he's not mocking but he's he's condemning that lifestyle and these people can populate that lifestyle authentically and not not understand (laughs) that he's critiquing that he's critiquing those parties you know it's not a lot of the this the the debauchery is weird because it's visually beautiful but does not make you it's not desirable in any way i don't think he lingers on anything it's very much something you don't want to be a part of even though it's visual you know just amazing to look at right like all of like the shots of all the different mansions everywhere you're just like i would hate to live there like that's beautiful but this is so ugly this is such an ugly lifestyle we can do a whole podcast episode about how much i hate shabby chic but (laughs) no yeah like some of those mansions are like wow that is visually looks like a it's painterly but it is the uh, one of the ugliest houses I've ever seen. Like, like he captures the beauty of ugliness, which is so. I mean, that's amazing. And I think Christian Bale is just absolutely perfect for this because he's 
stated his disdain for Hollywood and for LA and like the filmmaking process. He's like, I love it and I hate it. Like, I think it's the most disgusting thing that you could do. Like, if there was an, an apocalypse to come and like movies were just kind of wiped away, I would be completely useless. But he'd be happy. Well, we know what he thinks of um, camera guys, right? No, uh, it's interesting because Christian Bale is such an intense method actor. And I don't think he gave him anything to work with <laughs> on this. So it's like putting him out of his comfort zone, too, because he's like, you don't know who you are this time. And that made him effectively play a guy who doesn't know who he is. <laughs> this this <laughs> movie did bring up the one question that I would ask Christian Bale if I ever met him in person. Was was it weird to have Natalie Portman shove her foot in your mouth? <laughs> Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Which that same sort of thing kind of happens, but not as like intensely in song to song with Ryan Gosling and Rooney Mara. I'm like, is just is this just a thing for Terrence Malick? Like, is <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of weird, weird intimacy, like peripheral intimacy happening. Where yeah, you know, he's he's not he's that's part of what you know the problem I had is is not realizing what's her face was was a uh, not it was a different relationship because mm-hmm. visually it's very similar. But yeah, it it uh it captures the the quirkiness and strangeness of all the individuals pretty well. Yeah. She's supposed to be more of the normal ones, but that was um I mean, I just imagine just being on set that day and it's like, okay, yeah, so you know, you're just going to walk around the house, you know, do this and like hold hands Hopefully by the window know. and, you know, just put your feet in his mouth. I'm sorry, what was that? Um, <laughs> could, could you um maybe put your feet in Christian Bale's mouth? <laughs> Uh, do you think that he was telling them to do that or she did that? I have you know, no clue. I don't know who thought of that, but man, that was something. That was it was really something. Yes. I do want to bring up a bit of the technical side of this. One, I can't imagine shooting on all of these different formats and having to edit them and make them cohesive with the LUTs and like aspect ratios, all of that sort of stuff. I think they do a good job. It still does kind of uh, take me out of it a little bit whenever it cuts to like a GoPro shot. I'm like, ah, you know, it's just, it's just so visually different. And especially the ones where the GoPro is like moving a lot. I'm like, I imagine if you'd be in the theater and you saw that you'd want to throw up. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think my ignorance helps with that because I don't, I don't notice the the GoPro split you know sometimes I'll think oh okay this is a GoPro but like it doesn't it's not jarring for me I think Malik is sort of accidentally appealing to our generation in a lot of ways and part of it I mean he uses the GoPro life style commercial you know uh, visual style much better obviously but like he he does kind of the wanderlust sort of desire to travel desire to go on a journey or whatever he kind of accidentally matches that that style he invented it kind of actually but it's interesting because it's not as um there's a critique of it when inherent in 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 how he films too he's sort of a gopro commercial for wanting to go back to childhood instead of go somewhere i i also wonder too i would love i've i've talked with one of his co-producers before just kind of about the process with working with him um she's like an arkansas native and worked with both Jeff Nichols who did like mud and midnight special all that sort of stuff she worked with him 
and Malik. And I was just, you know, asking him, like, what was it like switching from someone like Jeff Nichols, who is much more like story based and much more cohesive into going into Malik, where it's just I think she started on Tree of Life and then did his subsequent films. I don't think she worked on A Hidden Life, though, you know, and she just talked about how odd it was, but like oddly freeing, too, because you just kind of feel like, okay, there's all this. He has like the sheet of stuff that he wants to do during the day. And if he, he's like, if we get it done, great. If not, we can do it another day. And there's something like freeing to that. But I, I'm also just like, that must be absolutely insane being on like the logistics side of it. Like, cause you can't plan for that. And like his um, location manager talked about, he's like, okay, we would scout scenes that we knew would be backlit really well and say like, okay, we need to go here this time of day and then here this time of the day because he loves having all of his actors backlit. And doing that instead of like, you know, what time are we going to get the best lighting so you can see everything here? It, I mean, it just must be crazy. Like, I imagine whenever they're running around on the streets or doing all these things, there must be PAs trailing behind with, like, these waivers of, like, okay, can you sign this that you're signing off to be in the film? Okay, can you sign this? Like, just leaving this wake of paperwork behind him. Well, Days of Heaven, the entire thing is golden hour, right? Yeah. So it, he just takes his time, all right? Because he's the most consistently visually beautiful director probably of all time. I know that's crazy for me to say that, but like, like he, I think he, everything is spectacular, everything he does. And so I'm assuming that is just, he has an eye for it. Obviously he has a, he's picked digital, which is smart. So he can now do whatever basically. And it looks good. But other than that, it's just time, right? It's just being patient. The patience allows him to find everything he wants. I mean, I feel like this, I mean, LA is easier to get good weather, so I'm sure this took less time. It's part of why it was so fast. It's just so bizarre to me because every other movie, if you want to, if every other director, if you wanted to make a lot of movies fast, the first thing that would get sacrificed is the visuals and then the, and then the, the, the script, right? Uh, you know, scripts takes time to get right, but like you would, the visuals would go first. And this is not that. This is he. Even in this era, this trilogy, he he doesn't miss a beat visually, and it's just I must. He must just be. That makes sense. That he's just patient. I also just can't imagine for producers and like companies that are putting in like Broad Green Productions who released um, this trilogy and then went bankrupt afterwards. Because I'm like, is it like just a a blank investment? where you're just throwing money because you're like, I want this movie to get made, but you know there's no way you're going to make your money back on it. Like, that's just so interesting about him because this trilogy did really poorly. Like, I think To the Wonder made like $600,000 or something like that. And so, I mean, I just can't imagine from like the money side of things, like who's going to put up money for this knowing that they're just not going to make anything off of it. Has he ever had problem getting money for any of his movies? Probably. But, I mean, it doesn't feel like it with any of them. And I think it's because a lot of actors are just like, oh, yeah, I'll do this for, like, nothing. That's, you know, clearly to, you know, do one good movie and then one masterpiece and then wait 20 years. That's the correct arc. That's the most, that's the most, that's the op- financially optimal career arc is to just get everyone wishing that you they can work for you. Yeah, he's doing uh, 
I actually you're talking about you're talking about we're talking about not having big name Hollywood actors. I think he's doing that for the Last Planet, which I'm I I think so. About. Well, I know Matthias Schoenarts from Danish films. Like he he works with Thomas Vinterberg yeah, a lot, but it's but. less less of his star-studded normal. Star. I mean, I guess uh, a hidden life. So I think he's sort of maybe entering a new phase now, which I'm very excited about because I do I do like that better than the stars. I I personally do. I mean. The Tree of Life, I think you need the, 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 the really high-quality actors. But if you can find the high-quality... Because Hidden Life, he found that he had women read the letters, the real letters in real life, to the husband, or maybe from the husband. And uh, then he found the, 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 the wife first. And then he said, okay, well, we need to find your husband now. So he he did the work to find good actors that, that weren't maybe as famous. I am very excited about The Last Planet, though. It's going to be all of just Christian Bale wandering the de- in the desert is going to be just The Last Planet. So the next step of this movie. <laughs> Christian Bale is his final... I mean, look at that beard. That's his his final... That's the final challenge for a method actor is, is to play Jesus. They shoot Christian Bale very strangely in this because there are some shots of him where I'm like, he looks so completely different in that scene from anything else I've ever seen him. Like, whenever he's in the aquarium... I think it's like the beard length and I'm pretty sure his weight fluctuates throughout from filming other movies as well because it seems like he maybe gets thinner throughout it by the end of the film and just like the change of the beard length and the hair length. I'm like, he just looks so weird in this. He doesn't have good posture and a lot like, yeah, I think he's just kind of, it's great though. He's not a, that, you know, you have to do that because he's not supposed to be, you know, that was the one weird thing is like. He looks like an at the beginning he looks like an actor. Yes. And he's supposed to be a writer, but throughout he sort of looks more schlubby, which is good. The weirdest scenes in the movie though, by far for me, are, you know, Malik going into the the office, going into the into the headquarters building or whatever, and and you've got these weird scenes of all these bigwigs just telling him how great, you know, it's clearly like his experience where they're like you're just so great. And and you're definitely gonna make money here, and just sign the dot here, and like he's just floating through, and he's this schlubby looking guy that you never see do any work, and these people are just like, "You're excellent, you're the best, you're gonna make so much money," and it's like, "Yep, that's probably what life has been like for someone as ridiculously talented as Terrence Malick." He just walks in, and there doesn't have to, you know, I don't. He just is a normal looking guy. <laughs> people are like. You're going to make a million dollars. And I don't think he ever, you know, he doesn't often actually make money. I no, like. no. Well, are you ready to move on to Trivia and Challenge? <sighs> yes. You okay. told me to study tarot, tarot, tarot cards. Yeah. And I clearly did not. So. Question number one. Which of these films does Malik profess to love? Is it A, Zoolander, B, Beverly Hills Ninja, C, Dazed and Confused, or D, Dumb and Dumber? Zoolander. That's correct. Final yeah, answer. he loves yes. Zoolander. Ben Stiller actually sent him like uh, a video of him playing the part for Terrence Malick's birthday. <laughs> that That's the best made of those movies. I mean, it's a, vi- it's a well-made movie. Yeah. For a comedy. Yeah. Like, so that yeah. doesn't surprise me. Well, Beverly... Uh... I would say Days and Confused is better made than Zoolander. Uh, yes, but there's something about I knew the answer wasn't going to be 
it was going to be a, something silly. Yeah, which Completely Beverly Hills Ninja yeah. is Christian Bale's favorite movie. <laughs> if you're so strange. serious, you got to have some fun, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, question number two. Which of these actors' scenes were not cut from one of Malick's films? So, so are you saying it's someone that's never technically never been in one of his yeah, films? Yeah, which of these did actors have, have, did has, have a scene cut? Yes. Uh, is it A, Christian Bale, B, Billy Bob Thornton, C, Val Kilmer, or D, Viggo Mortensen? Oh, wait, so, uh, now I'm confused. So you're saying it's someone... Someone who... So, so like Chris, Christian Bale's in character this movie, so. or footage was not cut from a movie was not cut from a movie yes well that's christian so, bale then because he's so in these this movie. well these the, they can star in multiple ones but who didn't have a scene or a character who, cut who has someone has never had yes stuff cut like as in like he's never had the experience had of a complete he, character or footage complete cut character cut uh, I'm going to say Christian Bale, final answer. That's incorrect. It is Val Kilmer. Okay. So Christian Bale shot footage for song to song, and his character got completely cut out. Okay. What um, is Val Kilmer in? He was in song to song. Oh, okay. All right. And that. then Billy Bob Thornton was cut out of Thin Red Line, and so was Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of guessed. Sorry, all that's a hard, hard to phrase question. Line. Question number three. What Malick film is Natalie Portman's favorite movie of all time? Is it A, The Thin Red Line, B, Days of Heaven, C, The New World, or D, Badlands? Days of Heaven, final answer. That's correct. Yep. Based All on right. her age, I'm sh- sure it was very influential. Yes. And when she was younger. and Yeah. Okay, yeah. here's your challenge. List all nine of the tarot figures that appear in the film. Knight of Cups. Yep. Moon. Yep. Tower. Yep. Hanged man. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 hermit. Mm-hmm. Judgment. Mm-hmm. Did I say death? Nope. The moon. That's one. That so those are all the scenes. No, there's one more. Freedom. Freedom. There you freedom go. is not a tarot card. Freedom's not a tarot card, though, is it? Right, but I think it's you're just saying the, the scenes that appear in it. Yeah. Okay. Wikipedia says that it's not when I read it before. That okay. It's not. I had to pull Wikipedia gotcha. up to understand. It represents the like so multiple says, ones, though, yeah. So, so but there, there are other ones that are in camera, right? Or no? I think so, I would yeah. Be able to, but I, did I get them all? Yes, you got them. There's one. Okay. Great. Nice. See, you said right. study up on tarot cards. Like, like I thought it was going to be like upside down. What does. The, well, I didn't the, mean like I, I didn't want to be like as direct as saying like remember all the title cards like it'd just be way too easy. Oh, I mean that was the only way for me to write the summary. <laughs> is right, to, that is the only thing that I grab onto to figure out to remember what's. I do appreciate that because um, I did have a hard time remembering the plot of Russian Ark because. There was uh, less structure. So I do appreciate the structure, yep. but I don't know how much the, uh, the actual tarot cards mean for what's happening. So my rating for it, I think that the limitations do breed the creativity with it, and I think they were very good and actually aided the film to be something very unique and unlike any other films being made. 
whereas I do not. But I I think it's a nice nice try. Nice try, Terrence. And, you know, get him next time. <laughs> uh, go back to – go back. You know, I think he saw the light. He mm-hmm. would disagree with you, actually, because it sounds like Man. he's realized the error of his ways and he has turned towards the light and made one of my favorite movies after this. So that's good. All right. Well, um, the next episode is actually our last one in this series. Uh, We're ending it with a bang with Jaws. So that's going to be a fun one. A lot to read up and study on, but it'll be be a good time. We're going to need a bigger podcast. (laughs) We are going to need a bigger podcast. Who knows how long. Even with this one, I was like, this is either going to be a really short episode or a really long episode. So it's it's a long one. Yeah, make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, you can follow us at Rules of the Frame. Make sure to leave us a comment or a question or anything like that. If you have a film recommendation, that you a film that you want us to cover, let us know. We might end up doing it. Uh, if you have a series idea, any of that sort of stuff, feel free to send us an IM or you can email us, whatever you want to do. Uh, we'd also love it if you gave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, that just really helps our show to be visible. Or if you just want to share it with friends and family members, we love and appreciate that too. We got to thank John for the use of the artwork and Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford, and Luke Hogan for the use of the theme song and outro. And this has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. Mm-hmm.